Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. So welcome back to this series exploring the history of witchcraft. This week we're going to be looking at some of the cultural factors which combined to produce the witch myth and create what was to be the concept of the witch. We are also going to be attempting to answer a few questions about the European witch trials. Namely, what context created such a large and fairly organised witch hunt? And why then, and why in that particular way? So if you haven't guessed already, next week we will be talking about said witch trials. So if that's what you're here for, I promise you it's coming, and this week will be a bit of a setup for that. So once again, I will make the point that I am primarily focusing on the witch and the history of the witch, as in the majority, the history of women. So witchcraft is not solely confined to women, and our discussion will discuss its overlap with male witches and other magic practitioners. But when we talk about the witch stereotype, we are going to be speaking primarily of female witches. Now this week's discussion owes a particular debt once again to a history of magic, witchcraft and the occult as well as the excellent A Witch, A History of Fear from Ancient Times to the Present by Ronald Hutton. I couldn't have written either of those without their help because it really helped to sort of tie together this very diverse history to start to approach the question of what created this idea of a witch, which, spoiler alert, a lot of things, (laughs) a lot of things sort of work to overlap and create this paradigm, as you will see. But without further ado... Let's get on with it. So Hutton in his work attempts to answer a question at the heart of the history of witchcraft. To quote, Whether what happened in early modern Europe was something unusual, or simply the most dramatic regional expression of something which human beings have done in most places at most times. So witchcraft is global, but the European and North American witch trials were ferocious and widespread enough to question what was it that pushed this seemingly normal social response into a force to be reckoned with. The definition of the witch we will use, and the one Hutton uses in his work as well, is that of the witch being, to quote, someone who causes harm to others by mystical means. It is crucial we are specific about the kind of witchcraft we are talking about, as this kind of definition holds within it a cultural bias in that the magical harm we speak of is in the Euro-American sense of the word. So as already touched upon, witchcraft and magic are global and shifting concepts. We are confining ourselves a little today in that we are focusing on the context around the European and Latin North American witch hunts. So since the dawn of human civilization, humans have been sharing their cultures And this sharing creates a world of cross-pollination, some of which we will talk of today. But to simplify slightly for the sake of time, primarily we are going to be speaking of witchcraft around and in contrast to Christian beliefs and predominantly Christian cultural backgrounds. So again to quote, The use of witch to mean a worker of harmful magic seems to have been employed by those with a genuine belief in magic which signified the great majority of pre-modern people, i.e. Christianity of the time held as part of its belief a sincere belief in the potential danger in magic, 
and the idea that people are capable of wielding it to destructive ends. So as we've already spoken of, there was a fair amount of overlap between magic and religion, in how it was practised, and what was and was not considered standard practice at particular times. So things like the use of religious talismans drifted in and out of favour, and entangled with the ideas of the right kind of spirituality. So along with religious transformative acts and liturgy, which made up the bulk of religious service, the belief system itself hinged on ideas around the spoken words and specific objects used in specific ways. Yet there was a line to be drawn between the transcendent and transformative powers of a Christian religion and the inverse and dangerous magic of witchcraft. Often the drawing of said line came down to who was practising it, as there was much more leniency when dealing with magic as practised by clergymen or influential people, seemingly for the benefit of many. But when the same attempts to interpret and manipulate spiritual power were done by an individual, then we are straying into witchcraft territory. After all, the prevailing thought was that it simply was not the individual or layperson's place to be communing directly with God. So to many, a belief in demons was a belief in magic, the two being two sides of the same coin, basically. To believe in God and his power was also to believe in demons and their power. But if it is the case that witchcraft is simply a kind of inverse to Christianity, why did it take so long to codify into a cultural archetype? After all, the evidence for any kind of organised witch trial before the 1300s is very slight. There were occasional prosecutions for people for witchcraft or magic, but they were individuals dotted around across various countries. No organised effort to suppress the idea of the bad magic practitioner. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, Exodus twenty two eighteen, was the main scriptural biblical authority which underpinned the witch trials up until the 18th century. It was, of course, a latter addition to this debate, but at its heart, it simply provided a justification to those who already held a belief in the danger of witchcraft and the need to snuff it out in such a deadly fashion. Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General, included said scripture in his 1647 The Discovery of Witches. But this interpretation relies on the King James translation of the text, one which sought to gratify the king's already held suspicions and fear of witchcraft. The Hebrew word translated to witch in this context, is, however, ambiguous in meaning. To quote, It has been strongly contended that the Hebrew feminine term used in the full text of Exodus, and usually translated sorceress, means either a mixer of drugs or a cutter-up of poisons. So already this broadens the definition to include other forms of magical practitioner, morally good, bad and neutral. However, clergymen came to use the moniker witch when dealing with a variety of magical practitioners in order to tar them with the same dangerous brush 
and so quash other kinds of spirituality along with witchcraft. So it seems that witchcraft as a concept in opposition to Christianity was drawing upon some already existent cultural themes and anxieties. After all, if it were as simple that witchcraft as a concept was an oppositional force to Christianity, needing to be suppressed in order for the latter to flourish, there would be evidence for its suppression in an organised manner much earlier than the early modern witch trials. So what else was at play here? It has been suggested that the idea of the witch was created or came about organically as a method of social control. An idea of an individual containing all that is undesirable about European culture by their actions striking at the religious and moral underpinnings of their society. So it was a figure for people to define themselves against, and a scapegoat upon which to level all social ills and the illusion of eradicating them. The deadly danger, of course, comes from when these definitions become applicable to individuals instead of figures, and the compulsion to remove them for good finds a mechanism for action. As already touched upon, the witch came to represent, in Hutton's words, an internal threat to a community. So the qualities we associate with the modern witch exemplify some of these threats. Individuality to a fault, organising themselves in some kind of secret society, particularly women-led society, and attacking the home and family. So witchcraft crimes were always personal and often motivated by love, jealousy, etc., in comparison to the concept of ceremonial magic and its practitioners, who were almost exclusively men, and we will talk a little bit about them later. But again, as mentioned, the physical description of the witch also made up an antithesis to certain ideals of women, fertility, and courtly love. So when the ideals of female romantic love stressed purity, youth, and an untouchable restrained sexuality, anything that hinted otherwise was a perversion or inversion of this central tenet of romantic love. And this included, but was not limited to, signs of ageing on the body, signs of sexual maturity, or even just latter life sexuality in general. As culturally and morally undesirable, women who had them or who distanced themselves from society in any way could be seen to have all of these antisocial traits and be, in and of themselves, a threat to society in general. But there was also a danger in getting too close to others. The efficacy of the witchcraft, or specific spells used as evidence in witchcraft trials, were thought to be related to how intimate the witch and the victim were, resulting in a paranoia that only strengthened the tighter the community got. So it was a catch-22 created by and in service of the community, and a trap that anyone could get stuck in. Hutton quotes as such, The witch is everything that people truly are as communities and individuals, but would rather not be. As such, it was as changing and as malleable as the communities and the individuals themselves. Now the witch archetype, if it can be called such, arguably was crystallised with the publication of the Malleus Maleficarum, also known as the Hammer of Witches or the Witch's Hammer. 
Archetypes, in the Jungian sense, are thought to be ancestral mental images shared by humanity's collective consciousness, and have been used to explain the seemingly unlikely coincidences in culture and folklore across the globe, which result in similar character types occurring to serve similar social needs in apparently disparate societies. So the theory goes as such that they are a projection, basically, of our inner social biases outwards. It has been suggested that the witch archetype could be seen as a negative polarisation of other female archetypes, i.e. the archetypes of the great mother and the wise old woman. These archetypes exemplify maternal solitude, quiet wisdom, and the idea of fostering growth. The inverse or shadow to these archetypes being the hag, the malicious, frightening, old and wicked woman with an inherent sexuality. And whether or not you believe in the innateness of said archetypes, they hold a certain utility and serve to neatly divide the desirable from the undesirable when fostering social unity. For instance, nudity was often an aspect of the witch law, as nudity also transgressed social norms, not just due to its association with overt sexuality, but because of its effect of stripping away everyday identities. A woman's class and social standing were also stripped away with their clothing, a social and moral transgression enabling illicit social mobility. Just another aspect of how the witch was thought to step outside the bounds of what was morally expected and right, and how this transgression could come to harm society in general. As a form of social control, it would then follow that accusations of witchcraft and social transgression would be more common in times of stress and hardship, when there was a utility in finding a scapegoat to explaining one's ills. It is true that witchcraft accusations do not automatically come about in times of stress, but tend to be slightly more common in set times. Its surge and then dying down serve a social purpose in said times. In Hutton's words again, it has tended to rebound on the social order in three different ways. To confirm the authority of traditional leaders in society, to enhance the power of an individual member of the traditional elite, or to enable a new social group to seize authority. In general, accusations of witchcraft seldom truly benefited the individual in any real way, but tended more broadly to serve the institutes of power, either current or future. To highlight this, and again to quote, the use of magic was never regarded as a legitimate means of pursuing feuds and quarrels within communities, but as an activity distinguished by secrecy, malevolence and intrinsic wickedness. So true social change, if a society is to survive and maintain the status quo, should be actioned by influential bodies and groups of people rather than individuals. An individual attempt to bring about this change was in itself transgressional. And widespread accusations of witchcraft then seem to indicate a breakdown of this essential power structure of individuals who, even as they were thought to be working with each other, were not working in their own structured society, 
challenge the true methods of justice. As individuals singled out from the masses, thus the prevailing attitude is made clear that justice should not be taken into the hand of individuals, especially those marginalised by society, whether it is by their own doing or societies. Thus, an influential school of thought among anthropologists has held that witchcraft accusations functioned as instruments of social health rather than symptoms of malfunction, i.e. a function of a society working to maintain the status quo or a successful translation of one power structure to another and an othering of all detractors to the cause. German historian Wolfgang Berner, in his exploration of the witch archetype, aimed to show that in most parts of the world, human beings have been inclined to attribute seemingly uncanny misfortune to evil magic worked by their fellows. Linked, says Hutton, to the fact that humans have a hard time grasping random chance and tend to seek out patterns and be drawn to ideas of an imagined agency in a world which seemingly does not care about us. Can we then say that the idea of the witch is just a fear response to events seemingly out of control, the urge to create a scapegoat and fit it to already existing ideas and biases. It is true, after all, that there were existing, older traditions whose ideas and themes create an image close to, but not identical to, the themes and motifs of the modern witch, and we will look at a few of these now. Now, Margaret Murray's Murray thesis, now widely debunked, Nevertheless, suggested the pagan survival hypothesis, i.e. the idea that witchcraft as a practice survived as a relic of pagan beliefs handed down and preserved. It then follows that the trials were an attempt to stamp out paganism as an enemy of the prevailing Christianity. Also called the witch cult hypothesis, it nonetheless asks a question that we are also asking, whether pre-Christian ideas survived the Christianization of Europe in the form of the witch or ideas around them. Now, scholarly study of trial records came to prove that practitioners of magic tried had no conscious knowledge of paganism or pre-Christian beliefs. But there were older beliefs and ideas newly available in Europe in translation some overlapping with contemporary ideas on witchcraft and magic. So astrology, for example, was a spiritual practice which had as rocky and as changing a history as magic in general, going from at times standard practice to simply tolerated, then despised by those in power. So astrologers for a time were often under direct employ by rulers and employed as court astrologers. In ancient Mesopotamia, where it has its roots, it was used to help in the construction of cities and to make grand decisions about the fate of entire peoples. But at its heart, it contained an aspect of divination and magic, a way of translating religious knowledge through scholarly practice to influence actions on earth. The Hittites, an ancient group of Indo-Europeans, also had a concept of witchcraft and a method of classifying types of magic along class lines. To quote, One reflection of the Hittite tendency to try to concentrate magical power in the hands of the government was that not only was witchcraft illegal, 
for anybody thought to have knowledge of magic was to be brought to the royal palace for interrogation. Similarly, ancient Egyptian beliefs, which due to an influx of new texts were becoming more popular and well-known, provided an example of a belief structure where the boundary between human and divine was porous, and as such magic saturated all aspects of day-to-day life, religion, medicine, commerce, etc. In this system, gods often needed humans' help. Humans communicated directly with said deities, and could also become divine through their actions. And Heka, the deification of magic and medicine, and name for its practice, Heka existed before duality had yet come into being. Ancient Egyptian culture used this relationship to serve all manner of public and private goals. Obviously, I am simplifying greatly because the Egyptian empire was so long that it's kind of impossible to comprehend, But in the culture that was newly available in Europe, so well integrated was magic into the whole social and religious system that there was no general word for magician in the Egyptian language. Its elaborate rites and practices, use of tools, sacred and magical spaces, no doubt formed a great influence on so-called ceremonial magic, meaning the employment of elaborate rites and special materials to achieve magical ends normally learned from written texts. So this was a scholarly application of magic and occult knowledge, and therefore simply out of reach for a vast majority of early modern European women. Ceremonial magician, or magus, dedicated their study and practice of magic to the worship of the one true God. And even during the height of the witch trials, and after the church had largely come to reject this notion and forbade it by decree in the 4th century, scholarly magicians were treated with much more leniency than their witch counterparts. And this past precedent no doubt had something to do with it. The translation and transmission to Christian Europe of Arabic texts into Latin in the 12th century or the 12th century Renaissance resulted in the reconciliation of ancient learning with creative literature, Christian beliefs, and knowledge of the natural world. The outcome of this was an intellectual revitalization of Western Europe. Aspects of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy and thought were adopted wholesale and permeated aspects of everyday life. As touched on in previous episodes, we owe this time and this process for the humoral theory of disease, which is based on the balancing of four elements within the human body. And this came increasingly to contrast with herbal medicine and the practice of cunning folk, whose form of beneficial magic was falling out of favour. But this was not the only idea which may have helped to outline what witchcraft was or wasn't. Now, no clear witch character, or at the very least no human one, exists in classical Greek literature, although there are some goddesses and nymphs with a strong resemblance. And Greek culture also had pharmacutria, the Greek word for potion-based magic, another explicit link between herbal concoctions and magic. But it was arguably in ancient Rome that the definition of the magical practitioner as an outsider menace was codified, with Seneca and Pliny condemning magic 
for its attempt to bend the deities to the individual's will. Unlike the ancient Egyptians, again very broadly, ancient Rome made a much stricter distinction between magic and religion. In the 2nd century AD, this came even closer to our modern definition of witchcraft, with beneficium and maleficium, defined as the intentional harm of others. When an epidemic hit Rome in 331 BC, over 170 women were put to death for causing it, and made to drink their own potions, seemingly hinting at a mass case of beneficial herbal magic gone wrong, and translated in its effect to beneficium. It seems, therefore, that the first modern witch can be traced back to ancient Roman times, and in literature to Horace's Canidia, to quote, A hag who poisons food with her own breath and viper's blood has books of incantations and enacts rites with her accomplices. To summarise in Hutton's words, it seems that cultures which had defined magic as an illicit, disreputable and ominous activity, and in which women were excluded from political and social power, such as the Greek and Roman, were inclined to bring the two together in a single stereotype of the menacing other. We can see more evidence of this intentional conflation with the references to the Roman deity Diana. So Diana is correlated with the qualities of the witch, associated with knights, nature, women, and witchcraft generally. And there is a question of whether scholars have imposed this well-known deity with such a strict temporal association with the modern witch myth onto local folklore tales in order to create a coherence where there perhaps is none. So there is a debate as to whether the methods, as well as the specific cultural items, were translated from these ancient texts onto early modern Europe and helped to shape the myth of the modern witch. In most trial records, witches do not name Diana as their accomplices or as their inspiration. More goddesses with names such as Abundia or Satia, hinting at a different set of cultural references, perhaps to those trying to do the interpretation of the records down the line. And these names, although sometimes corrected as bastardised versions of established deities, suggest a less organised, less ancient form of magic being practised by those who admit to using it, even if they're unsure as to the level of agency they have over their own actions. This was, after all, an accusation for which often just a thought was supposedly enough to cause real-world harm. But the gods and goddesses these women claim to ally themselves to, says Hutton, the connotations are all of generous, bountiful, powerful and caring patronesses who provide fun and feasting to poor people, and especially poor women, and in doing so supply them not merely with the revelry and plenty usually missing from their day-to-day lives, but often with greater respect in their communities, as wielders of arcane power and knowledge. So aspects of the witch may have been inherited from these more ancient cultures, but the power associated was not inherited by the women accused of its practice. Early modern European popular culture 
often featured witches as a character to be condemned or at least suspicious of, and this clearly reflected a popular thought. So works of playwrights such as Shakespeare and Marlowe, being at their heart, of course, crowd-pleasing spectacles, the concept of the witch at this time was at least a cultural stereotype or shorthand that was instantly understandable to a contemporary audience. In its purpose and utility, it is clear that it brought together a range of forces at work in early modern Europe, and through a culmination of all, turned into the deadly prosecution of powerless scapegoats, with no real hope of ever defending themselves. And with this bit of context in mind, we will begin to explore the trials next week, and hopefully come closer to understanding how all of these factors came to a head in the way that they did how this figure of the witch was persecuted en masse and used as a form of social control and a site of fear. So I hope you'll catch me next week. It's going to be a bit of a heavy one, but a dark time in all of our pasts, which it is valuable to be aware of. And as much as we like to think as a society that we have moved on from this kind of behaviour, it is a sad fact that there are people out there today being accused of witchcraft imprisoned and given the impossible task of proving their innocence against accusers who hold all the power over the situation. So the ways in which this kind of behaviour come about and the ways it is and often isn't supported by historical events are part of a process constantly at work and hopefully the more knowledge we have of it the easier it is to spot it before it turns deadly in this way and that is where we are headed in a few days you can find me wherever you like to find your podcasts and you can chat with me on twitter as weird horizon and on instagram as weird horizon podcast and search weird horizon podcast on youtube for episodes there if that's how you like to consume your content At the moment, the YouTube channel is a little dormant, but if you would like more episodes there, I would recommend following the channel so when I eventually get around to putting more up, you'll be the first to know about it. Stay spooky, much love as always, but for now, bye.